Hey everybody, my name's Tim Muirhead. Welcome to Tonebenders. I will be one of your hosts for today. Renee can't be with us today, but sitting in as co-host is Teresa Morrow, uh, one of my longtime friends and the person who conducted the main interview for this episode. Hey, Teresa, how you doing? Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, thank you for being on the show, <laughs> Teresa. Tim and I uh, went to New York in November of 2016. Correct. Luckily, we were privileged to interview some really big names and uh, some up-and-comers in New York and uh, see some fantastic facilities. And um, Tim put me up to interviewing Tom Fleischman. Yes, I challenged her because I was tired. <laughs> He's tired and also uh, – so Tim's mostly a sound effects editor and sound supervisor. I mostly mix. I uh, work at a place called Spence Thomas Audio Post in Toronto. And I mix a lot of TV shows and odds and ends of other things. And uh, Tim thought, well, you're the mixer. Why don't you interview Tom Fleischman, who is sort of a legendary re-recording mixer in New York City and in American film in general. And uh, I was like, that's scary, but okay, I'll do it. <laughs> she, you, don't act all like, okay, I'll do it. You did an amazing job, as everyone's about to hear. Uh, but it was fun to watch you squirm as the time ticked by until you were about to sit down to do the interview. Yeah, no, I was freaking out. <laughs> yeah, you were freaking out. And uh, as a longtime friend of yours, to be able to be the one to put you in a position to make you squirm and freak out gave me great pride and joy, I'm going to well, be honest. I would expect no less from you. <laughs> So um, I guess I'll jump in and sort of give you a bit of background about Tom's career. Um, as I said, like he's mixed some of the, you know, most iconic American films. He's the guy who works with uh, Martin Scorsese. Uh, he's mixed Spike Lee's films. He works with John Sayles and Jonathan Demme, among other, you know, big name directors and, and producers. Uh, if you go and look at his IMDb page, you'll be pretty impressed because he's got, uh, I looked this morning, he's got 197 sound department credits. Uh, and those credits span 40 years. Wow. It's, you know, it's almost absurd to try and, like, quote-unquote, name a few big films he's worked on because he's worked on so many. Uh, one of the many interesting things is that his entire career has taken place in New York. He's New York-born and uh, New York-bred, and that's where he's decided to make his life and his career. And uh, he's really, I think, an important part of the filmmaking history that has come up in New York since the 50s and 60s when big films started coming out of New York. Big films started coming out of smaller studios in New York. And uh, Tom was there. Yeah, and he's kind of a second generation in that because his mother was there too. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing about him uh, is that his mother is Dee Dee Allen, who is, you know, a famous American editor, uh, picture editor. Um, and her career goes way back to um, Columbia Pictures. She started in Hollywood. Uh, she cut Bonnie and Clyde. She cut Serpico. You know, she worked with Sidney Lumet and Paul Newman and uh, Warren Beatty and cut some incredible films. And the fact that Tom was, uh, you know, basically growing up in the business, uh, I think, gave him an incredible head start, which allowed him to basically start his career at the age of 18. And... Um, I, I started the interview by sort of saying, like, you know, you've got this credit, Reds, you know, Warren Beast's, like, sort of international epic. And I sort of asked him to explain, like, how did that happen? Like, how do you get that credit so early on in your career? And so he sort of jumped in and explained a bit his trajectory to that film, Reds. 
the yeah, Reds was the first big, really huge project. Uh, at that time, the mixer I was working for was uh, a man named Dick Voracek, who was uh, a really great mixer, a pioneer. And he was basically my mentor and my teacher. And I mixed that with Dick. Dick was the lead mixer. I was kind of second chair. But Dick had, had some health problems and couldn't work a lot of overtime. I filled in. I would come in late in the day. I'd come in around noon. He would work until 6, and then I would stay until whatever time Warren Beatty wanted to leave, which often was 10 o'clock, midnight. You know, so we were working long days on that. Uh, and that mix went on for many, many months, four months, I think. Uh, Am I mistaken? Did your mother cut that film? Yes. Yeah. Yes, did, did you have any uh, interaction with her professionally? Oh, yeah. She was there at the mix. She was there, uh, yeah. Yeah, we were mixing together. That was... Uh, but, you know, she and I were pretty close. And, you know, I had always kind of hung out around the cutting room uh, when I was in high school. You know, I'd take my spring breaks and help in the cutting room doing, you know, odd jobs, deliveries and logging dailies and making cinetabs. Nobody knows what a cinetab is anymore, but uh, they were important things. <laughs> you were a studio rat from a young Yeah, age. there was no studio, though. It was just... You know, it was this one building on Broadway, 1600 Broadway, where everyone worked. She worked there for many years and uh, cut many movies there. And, you know, I mean, I had kind of grown up with it. I remember as a, as a child, nine, ten years old, coming to the mix with her. I remember one day I was a little kid and they broke for lunch and, you know, the mixing console looked pretty cool. So I got up onto Dick's chair and uh, started moving things around. And, and there was no console automation or anything like that in those days. And he comes, he looks at me, and he says, uh, you know, I don't mind if you do that as long as you put everything back the way it was. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I mean, I remember at 10 years old, I went down one night on the set of The Hustler uh, when they were shooting under the West Side Highway. So, you know, I had this kind of family life of movies and the New York movie scene, the New York post-production scene, basically. You know, to some degree production, too. So there was, a, you know, there was this sort of, in my DNA, I always knew that I wanted to get into it in some form or other. When I was in college, I, uh, I spent one year at NYU Film School and dropped out. I was looking for a job in the editing room. I wanted to be an editor. But someone said to me, do you really want to do that? I mean, you know, your mom's like the greatest editor. And do you really want to be competing and, you know, feeling it's, it's going to be a little strange? So I thought about it. And there was no jobs available anyway. I mean, I think I could have gotten a job at NBC doing some news gathering B-roll stuff. But I wanted to be in feature films. That was what really thrilled me, movie making. And uh, I finally got a job at this little sound effects place. The place was called Image Sound Studios. And uh, this guy, Alicia Birnbaum, who had just come from Israel, had opened a little one-room sound effects place in the Brill Building. And he brought with him from Israel a sound effects library, which he had gotten at an auction, which just consisted of like a whole stack of cardboard cartons full of quarter-inch tape, you know, seven-inch reels of quarter-inch tape with no indication of what was on them. Basically, the first thing that he did was give me uh, these sound effects. He put me in a room with a Revox tape recorder and a pair of headphones and said, listen to these tapes and just make a list of what's on each reel. And so I did that. And then, you know, when I was finished going through all of that, which took weeks, uh, he showed me how to splice the tape with white leader. And I started collating a sound effects library. And that took another month or two. 
And then I had a sound effects library and I knew all the sound effects. So when the editors would come in, the sound editors would come in looking for sound effects. I would sit and audition the sound effects with them and they would say, yeah, transfer, you know, 300 feet of those birds and, yeah, I'll take that door and that car. And uh, we sold the uh, sound effects for $7.50 a piece and 10 cents a foot for the stock. And I worked there for a couple of years, and then I was hired away by Dick Vorsek and his brother Jack at Transaudio. And that's when I started doing uh, daily transfers and got into the union. Aside from the mind-bending concept of that's how you sourced sound effects back in the day, <laughs> the laboriousness yeah. of it. And some of them were terrible. I mean, they were off old optical tracks, you know these old Warner Brothers effects that he had got, you know, I don't know how they, what the genesis of them was not good. And some of them were pretty bad, but it was a great job. I loved it. We worked on this film called Serpico and they needed some really specialized stuff. It was this great sound editor named Eddie Beyer who was really had great taste and, and he really wanted to make it special. So uh, I went out with one of the sound editors and we went around for weeks during the summer just going to different places, tenements, police stations, hospitals, and recording backgrounds, recording ambiences. He wanted the precise sounds yeah. of those precise yeah. places. Uh -huh. yeah. And then in the beginning of the movie, the movie starts with a siren. You know, the siren fades in and then suddenly you begin to hear other sirens also. And he's in the car and he's been shot and they're taking him to the hospital. So they wanted to start with a, you know, this montage of siren sounds. And they had gotten the, the police car that they used in the production. And we took it up to Dykeman Street up in the Bronx. And we were recording the siren. I strapped a uh, shotgun mic to the windshield. And we're driving up and down this road with the siren going. And the next thing we know, a real cop comes along and stops us. And he says, what the hell are you guys doing? And we explained to him what we were doing. And he says, can we help? And so there were two of us, you know, and we were, it was it was really fun. And then there was a third cop that actually joined in, too. And, uh, we, you know, we, that, that's how we got that sound at the beginning of the movie. Uh, that was, a, you know, it was a wonderful time for me. I, I learned a lot about sound effects, uh, doing transfers. I learned a lot about that. Um, during the time I was doing transfers, there was a uh, production mixer named Chris Newman, who's still around, and he was working on a lot of high-profile movies. Uh, All That Jazz was the one that I want to talk about. At those days, at the end of the day of shooting, everyone would go and screen the dailies from the day before. And so Chris wanted to have the dailies screening sound good. And I was doing his transfers, and he said, if you can get in to the mixing room before they start mixing in the morning. Could you like equalize the dailies and do some, you know, noise reduction and that kind of thing? So that's what I did. I would go to the lab at seven o'clock in the morning, pick up the tapes, go into the studio where they, before they were starting for the day, uh, between eight and nine and do the transfers through the console and learned an incredible amount about equalization. But we had very, very, very crude tools. You know, we really didn't have a compressor at all. I don't remember ever using a compressor, but I did use a noise gate in some cases. It was a old Magnatech noise gate that Dick had designed, which yeah, it didn't really work all that well. You could hear it, you know, if you weren't careful with it. So I, you know, I experimented with all these things, you know, the equalizers. I learned how to use them. Uh, I learned the console a little bit and it was great training. 
And at the same time, the studio, Transaudio, was also offering mixed time for film students at NYU, at School of Visual Arts and Columbia University to mix their student projects. And I would come in on Saturdays and Sundays, and they would charge the students 25 bucks an hour, and I would mix their little student projects. And I did that for, I think, almost a year. Did Are there a lot any of... relationships that started um, with any of those I, students that I went did on a to... Fil- yeah, well, there's several of those people went on to have careers in various aspects of posts. One of them was uh, Joel Cohen, Nancy Savoca, and uh, David Rogo, who's an editor. I did all of their student projects, and it was really great training because I got to sort of play around and and learn something about how all this stuff worked, all the gear. But even more than that, it was all. <laughs> I was more interested in the films themselves because I feel like it, it's really not about the gear, and it's not about the the, the medium. Uh, what's important is the story and how the film is working on screen dramatically with the sound. Does it play? So my, my interest in doing this was, uh, was in making the movies, you know, making the stories work, making, you know, making it play. And I have held through that philosophy my entire career. And it's really intuition and, and feeling, gut feeling, as to what makes things play on screen. Uh, when I sit here, um, I'm trying to put myself in the mind of the audience member who's seeing it for the first time. It, it basically comes down to, does it sound natural? Is there anything that's distracting me from the story? Anything at all? Is there something out of sync? Is there a sound effect missing? Is there a sound effect there that shouldn't be there? Uh, is there something that's too loud, something that's too soft? Does the dialogue sound smooth? Does the ADR match? You know, all of these things uh, will hit me. Like I'm watching it and suddenly it just hits me and something is, something's wrong and I have to address it. And that's, that's how I go about it. Hey, everybody, this is Tim. I'm just going to jump in and interrupt here for a moment. We want to give you guys a heads up that there's going to be some spoilers coming up, okay? He's going to talk about the film Silence of the Lambs and give away the ending. So if you haven't seen that film yet, stop the podcast right now, okay? If you have seen the film because you're a normal human being, (laughs) continue on with the podcast. Yeah, so up till this point in the interview, uh, Tom's given us a lot of history about his trajectory and and sort of establishing his career. Um, I kind of selfishly, as a mixer, kind of wanted to ask him like more specific questions about even just the kind of minutia of mixing. Like, how do you approach it when you sit down? What do you do? And uh, so before we interrupted, he was sort of getting into that. From there, I asked him more specific questions about uh, like how he interacts with the sound editors and the sound supervisors and how they kind of work out the hitches that you may come up against when you're actually sitting in your chair and you're mixing away. So uh, Tom picks up on that interaction between him and the sound editors. Well, uh, I think it's a team effort, obviously. Um, I don't choose the sound effects. I just react to them. And they've obviously spent a lot of time carefully choosing and designing the sounds for the film. The director has his vision of what things should be, and 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 hopefully they've communicated before the mix, and the sound editors are in tune and they're all on the same page about where they want 
sound, where they don't want sound, where the music is going to be playing, and which aspect of the track is going to be carrying the scene. Now, you get into the mix, and sometimes those ideas that you had about it don't work out. Either the music is wrong somehow, and you know, you're know you relying on a music cue to play with this scene and carry the scene, and now suddenly the music cue isn't working. And what do you do? Um, and hopefully the sound editors have not anticipated that, but have at least something in the track, even though they know that they've been told that you know, music's going to carry this scene, so don't do too much here. But you know, you find yourself in a situation where you're scrambling around trying to find out how to make the scene play. Uh, this happened to us on, uh, on Silence of the Lambs at the end of the movie. They're in the kitchen. Say, has the FBI learned something? The police around here don't seem to have the first clue. She sees the moth. We begin to hear music. Howard Shore wrote a very nice piece of score. And his score... Sure you can use my phone. ...carried us through. The killer drops the cards, runs outside, runs down the stairs. She grabs her gun, follows him down, and they go through this labyrinthine basement and winds up with her shooting him dead. And Howard had written the score that went all the way through. And it was basically the theme, the main theme of the movie, uh, with some minor variations. And at a certain point, we all realized when we were looking at it that the music wasn't carrying it. Once she gets to the bottom of the stairs and she doesn't know where the killer is and she's gonna start looking for him. She hears this drum beat off in the distance. And the score wasn't working with the drum beat, and you know, it just was a mess. And we wound up basically just potting out the score at that point when she gets when she's about to go through the door. And uh, it went without music. And it wasn't without music because there was this source music there. And there was a song playing and these drums and and it's all echoey, and then the dog starts barking, and the girl is screaming, and there's all these different sound elements that were really interesting. And Skip Livesay had designed some beautiful ambiences down there using, I don't know, him and Eugene Garrity got together on a synclavier, and they were like bending guitar notes, and there was like layers and layers of, you know, wing flaps and the moth hitting the light bulb and the, and the refrigerator kicking on, the compressor motor kicking on the refrigerator and you know, making her turn. And it was really great. And it worked fine until the end. Uh, and then you reach a point in the scene where, you know, the, the lights go off and he puts the glasses on. That's the night vision goggles. And at that point, there's not much else you can do with the sound effects to carry that. And so we just sort of brought the music. We found a place to bring it in, you know, at the beginning of a musical phrase, we brought in the score. It was the main theme, you know, it comes in and plays through the rest of the scene. And that's the way that scene was constructed. But it started out as kind of a real mess with Sound effects weren't working because the music was there and the music wasn't working because it was kind of dragging the scene down. It was slow and kind of maudlin uh, and it wasn't suspenseful.
it, you know, anything can happen in the mix. You know, it, 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 you get to a point where suddenly you realize the music isn't working, and that can be real trouble, especially if you've been relying on music to carry the, the dramatic impact of the, mm. of the movie. You know, you go to the music recording session, and it sounds great. It's a beautiful orchestra, and you like the mu music, and you've got the right instrumentation, but suddenly, when you put it up against the movie and the dialogue and the sound effects and you play it in context, uh, no, wait a minute, this is not doing the job that we need it to do. And I've been in situations where they've fired the composer and hired someone else. And, you know, I mean, uh, that's not unheard of. Maybe a good instance to talk about uh, how your relationship with your director's works out in that moment, you know, like that seems to be the kind of moment where I was like, oh, we're not really sure how we're going to solve this problem. And they may be turning around looking at you and being yeah. like, what are we going to do? Well, that happens. And it's a matter of trial and error, really. I mean, at that point, we're all in this together. I'm, you know, it depends on the relationship with the director, obviously. But, uh, you know, a lot of the directors that I've worked with, um, I've worked with for many pictures and we know each other very well, and I understand what they're looking for, and uh, they trust me, and so we'll just start trying things. Uh, you know, it's just like it's not working. We got to go back and try something else. Maybe they're going to recut. We'll, you know, we'll move on past this, and we'll revisit it. Uh, they may, the music editor might have some ideas about how to restructure the score to make it work. Uh, very often, I find that uh, the composer and the sound crew are kind of doing the same thing, trying to tell the same story. And when you put it all together, it just becomes sort of muddy. And it's a matter of sort of weeding things out. And then, you know, it's just a matter of working with the director, communication. You know, everyone will have an idea. And I, you know, I might have an idea. Sound editor might have an idea of what to do. And it's a matter of just trying different things until you find something that works the best. Mm. And being willing to try things that are maybe unorthodox, but hopefully you can find something that at least makes the f scene play. Yeah. I mixed a film once with, uh, it was very early on, um, and the composer was very famous now, well-known composer, I won't say who it was, but it was his first film project. He had been involved in some other things before that and was already kind of well-known. And he, he wrote this... Uh, really bombastic orchestral score, big orchestra, lots of big timpanies and swells and crescendos. And there was a scene, the actor was Sam Jaffe, who was this old actor who used to play in Ben Casey on television. Uh, and he had a very, very soft voice. And he had this long scene where he gives this soliloquy and this almost a whisper. He's talking like this, you know, very soft. And the score is like... Victory at sea, you know, <laughs> big, doom, doom. and there was just no way that it was going to work, you know, and it just, I just had to keep turning it down lower and lower and lower and lower, and nobody was happy, but, you know, it was one of those situations where you do the best you can, and uh, I think the composer learned a lesson from that, you know, you, <laughs> hopefully the composer is going to clear for dialogue, yeah. you know, find a way to open up the score for the, so that we can hear the words. Because that's a whole other subject, this dialogue. And, yeah, uh, I understand you're a dialogue first. Oh, yes. Mixer. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, and this it doesn't make any sense to do it any other way, I don't think. I mean, I just don't understand the concept of, oh, the dialogue's not really that important. Or I've heard, uh, I once had a director say to me, yeah, I really want the audience to struggle to have to hear the dialogue. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God. You know, what? How's, that's just like idiotic from my perspective. The whole thing is about telling a story. It begins with a script, which are words on a piece of paper, and that's the story. So let's hear it, you know? I mean, it doesn't make sense to do it any other way, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I understand that there are times when you want to push that envelope a little bit, and I've done that myself many times, but it always has to be intelligible. You know, even when you're going to do something like that, you've got to be careful. Uh, I mean, that's probably the worst sin in mixing, as far as I'm concerned, is you have an important line of dialogue and someone doesn't hear it. Uh, you know, story-wise, an important line. I think that's yeah. a, that's a, a thing I, I wonder about sometimes. Like, I went and saw Moonlight last week, uh -huh. and um, there are a lot of very quiet, intimate moments mm -hmm. in that film, and I, it was pushing the envelope for me. And I was yeah. like... When do you do that, and how many mixers actually subscribe to that idea of making people lean in? It's, it's a great thought experiment, I think. But in the real world, you lose the audience. That's my feeling, my opinion. Uh, if, if the audience has to turn, if the, you know, you have to turn to the person next to you and say, what did he say? Suddenly you're not watching the movie anymore. You're not there. You're not in the story. I mean, and then we've failed. The, the audience should never hesitate, you know, to hear what's important. Um, my feeling is that in any movie, no matter what type of thing, television show, a movie, or a documentary, or whatever it is, there's, there's always, at any given moment in the film, one important sound that has to be heard, that should be out in front of everything else. And whether it's a line of dialogue, uh, whether it's a sound effect or a music cue or even a note of music or a single drum beat or something like that, you know, there's always something that needs to lead and be up front and everything else has to support it. You know, they call it underscore for a reason. It's supporting the story and it's giving an emotional connection. Uh, and if it's too loud and you can't hear what people are saying, it's not going to have the same emotional impact if it's too low and you can't hear it properly, same thing. You know, you, you need to be able to hear the melodies, you need to be able to hear the different instrumentations, but you also have to hear what's being said by the, by the actors. That brings up something I, I was going to ask you about, actually, you mix Martin Scorsese's films. Mm -hmm. He's really well known for putting popular music in his movies. Yeah. Uh, with people singing very recognizable melodies underneath mm -hmm. scenes. How do you manage that, basically? Because I feel like people's attention is, they know the song, they recognize the song, that's why it's there. Yeah. And you're kind of trying to interplay what you're doing, sometimes with dialogue over top of that. Yeah, and he also, in most of his movies, uses a lot of voiceover. So you've got three layers of, and beside the sound effects, I mean, leaving the sound effects out of it, You've got dialogue, you've got voiceover, and you've got music. And it, particularly in a film like Goodfellas or Casino, those things were always like weaving one into the other, into the other, into the other, into the other, with a punctuation of music or a, you know, one line of dialogue, and then the voiceover continues. And it's just a matter. I mean, for me, it was a, you know, it was a difficult job. Uh, we worked for a long time on that film to get all those balances correct. 
Um, and Marty is very particular about that. And also about the way that the music fits with the image. He will, he will have in the script an idea of what exact phrase or lyric or whatever of the song is supposed to fit with what image. And very often the film gets recut and his original idea doesn't necessarily work because the music has to be cut in order to keep that, right? So it can be very challenging at times to find a way to hide those music edits so that an audience member who's very familiar with the song doesn't recognize that it's been chopped up. Uh, that's, that's a challenge. Uh, and, you know, he's, he understands that. I mean, he, he gets that he can't always have that, you know, if something's been changed. You have to make a compromise. But Thelma Schoonmaker is very good at finding ways to hide those cuts. You know, she'll put something, some dialogue or some sound effect where you can make a change. And a lot of the time it's successful. Uh, you know, sometimes it, it's noticeable. But most of the time, if, if here's again, if the scene is playing, you know, if the audience is listening to the music, then the scene's not playing. So if the scene is playing, they're not going to notice those things because they're going to be with the story. So that's, you know, there again, it's, yeah. it, it comes back to that. Mm -hmm. Like with Martin Scorsese, uh, my sense from interviews and some of the interviews that you've done uh, talking about his films, that he comes in and he sort of has, he knows what the movie's going to sound like yes. already. Yes, he does. One director, Spike Lee, knows exactly what he wants. I imagine. Never a question. Yeah. Marty's the same way. Jonathan Demme, he can look at something and then he'll get some other idea. In Melvin and Howard, there was a scene where Melvin discovers the will on his desk in the gas station. And uh, originally Craig and Jonathan had laid in um, Farron Young singing uh, Sweet Dreams, <laughs> Farron Young version of Sweet Dreams, which was really wonderful. It just played beautifully. And suddenly Jonathan changed his mind, you know, after the mix, you know, we were on the final days and he, no, I want to put in the Sir Douglas Quintet. She's about a mover. What? <laughs> you know, it's like the total opposite. Craig was, Craig was apoplectic yeah. because we, and, and me too. I mean, we both loved that, you know, the, the way the scene played. It was a suite with the, with the pedal steel and all that stuff. And then suddenly you've got these, you know, raunchy guitars playing and, not very melodic song going under it. And that, that's what's in the movie, you know, in the end. It plays, but it doesn't play the way I, you know, I remember it playing before. Yeah. I, I, I used to get very invested emotionally in the work that I had done. And when someone asked me to change it, I would, you know, it would like, you know, it would gnaw at me. It would piss me off. And I've learned over the years not to do that because it's counterproductive. I mean, it's not my movie. I do the best I can to make it the way I want it to be. Then we present it to someone and they give input. And very often that winds up working out very well for a collaborative effort in terms of ideas, because I may have some idea that the director didn't have that works. And then he'll see that and he'll go, oh, wow, that was good. You know, let's, let's keep that. Mm -hmm. My advice to young mixers is don't get too emotionally invested in your work, it's going to change. It, they're always going to recut something. And stuff that you loved may not be there in the end. And it's really not your job to get upset about it. It's, uh, 
it's a matter of allowing the director to, you know, have his way. And uh, hopefully, if you work together to accomplish that, you'll form a relationship and he will trust you. And you'll be able to continue to work together. And that's been my experience. Mm. When I've become resistant, sometimes they don't come back. You know, I've had bad experiences with directors that way. Right. Where, you know, I get pissed off at them or they're arrogant or whatever and uh, we don't get along. You know, there have been a few directors I have not gotten along with. And, uh, you know, we've stopped working together. You know, we do one picture and that's it. Can I ask you about... Um you mixed all of Boardwalk Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that the first full series of television, like yes. prestige television? Well, I had done some episodes of The Equalizer years ago, uh, back in the 80s. Not so prestige. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I hadn't done any episodic television really until Boardwalk Empire. I didn't mix all of it. I mixed most of it. Yeah. There were several episodes that I didn't do. Half a season here where I was moving on to a feature, and and Bob Shafalis took over. So did that happen because Martin Scorsese made the pilot and you were working with him? That had, uh, yes, that had a lot to do with it. And I wanted to do it, I enjoyed it. I, you know, mixing episodic television is a whole different animal than mixing a feature film. And I approach it a completely different way. It's much more old school to me. You know, before we had console automation and stereo, um, you know, when we were back in the days of mono and we were on a three-track master and you had 24 tracks total for everything, you could put it all up and mix a reel, you know, and you didn't do any pre-dubs. Mm-hmm. It was just mixed. In, in a feature film, you do a dialogue pre-dub where you just work with the dialogue and get all the ADR in there and get it all matching and smooth out all the different tones and whatnot. Uh, with Boardwalk Empire, I did no pre-dubs. I didn't do dialogue pre-dubs. I worked the way I used to work when we had very limited resources. The advent of stereo kind of changed everything because suddenly you had to use stems, and that required doing pre-dubs and, uh, you know, dialogue pre-dubs and effects pre-dubs and then adding the music was it initially a time constraint that made well, you Well, yes, you know, I mean, I, well, yes, we had, aside from the pilot, the pilot we mixed as if it was a feature. We did a pre-dub, we, you know, we spent weeks on it, and I went, I think we spent four weeks on the pilot, the first episode of Boardwalk Empire, and then I go on to episode two and I've got five days. As a mixer, what do you do? you got five days to do an hour episode, there's really no time to do pre-dubbing, you know, you just got to put it up and mix it, so... In my head, and, you know, uh, I hope the audience doesn't take this the wrong way, I treated it as if it was a temp mix, where you've got five days to do a temp mix, and you have to put everything up and mix it. Luckily, I was working with a good team. There was a good sound editor who was able to provide with solid effects pre-dubs that I didn't have to fool around with too much, and... uh, it really, it was a matter of the music wasn't real complicated because most of it was old recordings of, you know, mono stuff. So it was a little easier to deal with. And the dialogue was well recorded for the most part. You know, I only have a very limited time to do it. You cannot do the kind of job in five days that you can do in five weeks. It's just impossible. And it was the same way on vinyl. Maybe different, just different challenges on vinyl in terms of... Oh, it was a completely different kind of show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was a little more complicated than Boardwalk Empire in terms of the music, certainly. 
there was a lot of, again, there was a lot of pre-records, but all the songs that were done with the, the lookalikes were, uh, were, had to be mixed. You know, those were sort of raw tracks. Uh, there was a mix of them, and it was pretty good, but it was stereo. It wasn't 5-1. And, you know, I had to do, you know, the panning was, had to follow the picture. So I had to do all of that stuff. Um, and that's complicated enough when you have that short of a schedule. Yeah, like you just know, getting all your pans in place. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you're, you changed the way you mixed for TV. Yes. Well, you have to. And documentaries, too. It's the yeah. same kind of thing. Did you take anything back from that stint of TV mixing to feature where you were, sort of changed the way you thought about some what uh, you were doing before? Oh. During those years, between when 2010 and now, a lot of the tools have changed. I mean, I'm using now, I'm using plugins, I'm doing some mixing in the Pro Tools. Uh, it's not all outside the box anymore. So, yes, that has carried on to the features. I mean, I was doing a lot of that kind of stuff on the TV shows where I was trying out new things. and. Yeah. and Learning some new tools. I heard you talking about clip gain in an interview. Clip gain was a huge thing, <laughs> yes. Well, that didn't come in until just a couple of years true. ago. You know, uh, But, yeah, that's really changed a lot of stuff, the way I work. And you mix those series in this room. Yes. Yeah, and this is a room that you've been in since? 2004. I remember the first time I walked in here and listened to something in here. I went, oh, my God, sounds great. And, and then I started listening to things that I did in here out in the world in different theaters and on television, and uh, it's, it's terrific. I mean, I love this room and the way it translates and, and you know. You just trust it. Yes, I yeah. trust it completely. When uh, you're talking about mixing for TV and, uh, you know, everybody's watching TV, like on their phone, mm -hmm. uh, earbuds or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, when you mixed for TV, do you take that into account in terms of dynamic range or anything? Like, you have to hit your numbers. Well, sure. Things. You've got the dial norm numbers that you have to hit, and that basically does the job, I think. Those things were pretty carefully researched and developed to allow not only for it to play compatibly on television with other things, commercials and other shows, so that everyone would sort of be on the same level, and you People wouldn't have to be turning their sets up and down all the time. Uh, but it also works for smaller formats, too. Uh, I get the feeling if you're also if you're a dialogue-first mixer, yeah. your mixes are going to translate well. Yes. Well, I believe that, you know, the whole track is, the foundation of the whole track is the dialogue. Everything yeah. should be balanced to the dialogue. Yeah. And obviously on television, for television and for small format, the dynamic range is compressed as opposed to a theatrical mix. Theatrical mix, you can have much, particularly with digital, you can have much more dynamic range. It didn't used to be that way with the optical tracks, but uh, when I mix for television, I just basically turn my monitor down, and that just raises everything up, and you don't have the, you know, you don't have as much dynamic range. And did you find you were needing to use compression? Oh sure. More. Oh yeah. Yeah, I don't really use a compressor on the buses. I use the limiters, and I set them fairly high. You know, I mean like minus 10 is where they start, start kicking in. And that's pretty, I mean, if you're like a monitoring for television at 78 instead of 85. So, you know, that's like a 7 dB, 8 dB difference. Um, and it, it works out. I mean, I mix with my ears. I don't watch the meters. I listen. And so I make the dialogue as loud as I think it should be to make the scene play. Here again, we're back to making it play. You know, how you set that dialogue level is, is, is a matter of how the scene is playing on screen. 
and this I found that that monitor level gave me that you know it, it would come out right at the end, and so I started using that you know exclusively, and it works. I just wanted to circle back a bit. Um, I'd watched an interview, a panel that your mother had been on, uh -huh. and uh, she says uh, that she was a huge movie buff as a kid. And I think uh, my mom also came from that era. My mom grew up in the 30s and, you know, Saturday morning, here's your five cents, get out, go to the movie theater. And they would just watch movies all day long. And it's like soaked into their DNA, basically, at that point. What movies are, how movies should sound, how they should look, it's like, yeah. it's so integral. I got that sense, like, your mother may have been somebody who would like that. Yeah. Movies were just, like, part of the the air she breathed. Yes, I think uh, that's true. And uh, I wonder if you, growing up, as uh, somebody who, like, mm, filmmaking was the business of the family, the family business in a way, your dad was also a producer, and mm -hmm. uh, like, did you go to the movies a lot as a kid? Oh yeah. yeah, I loved to go to the movies. I loved it. Uh, I would do the same thing. I would go to see a double feature and sit through it twice. I remember doing that a lot. And I was kind of a street kid, you know. As as a working mom, she wasn't around a lot, you know. And I was left on my own to my own devices quite a bit. Uh, my father would travel. You know, he was a TV producer and he was doing documentaries all over the world. So he would be away for weeks or months at a time. And she would travel too. So, you know, I had a lot of free time on my own as a young person. And uh, one of the things that I liked to do was go to the movies. So, uh, and I had the freedom to do that. It's important because that's, just like you say, this is how a movie should sound. You know, you see a lot of movies uh, and... They make an impression on you, and 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 you carry that on into your work. You know, it, it, you see something in a movie you're working on now that evokes the feeling of something that you remember seeing, or reminds you of something that you remember seeing when you were young. Uh, that gives you an idea of how you might want to approach mixing. Do you think you carry any of your mom's sensibilities about film into your work? I think I got a lot of it from her. Yes, I do. She used to talk to me a lot about uh, feelings, feeling it in your gut. One of her famous or common sayings was, I, I cut with my gut, and I feel like I mix with my gut. I mean, when I'm, when I'm mixing... Uh, particularly with music, I'm not thinking about anything but how it's making me feel and whether it's working and, and then whether I'm drawn in to the story and into the feeling of what's happening in the, in the story. The thing that really makes me happiest here at, in the studio is when I have my hands on the faders and it's almost like a Ouija board. It's like I'm not thinking about anything I'm not thinking about the meters. I'm not thinking about the gear. I'm just listening and letting my hands do what they do. Uh, and it's sort of a connection between my hands and my ears and my brain and, and the story. And when that happens, and it usually happens to me with music, mostly, uh, sometimes with sound effects too. But I think mostly with music, I'll just, you know, I'll be mixing a music cue in and the scene is really working like gangbusters and everything is perfect. 
And that feeling that I get when that happens is absolutely just the most wonderful thing. It, I go home and I think about it and I thought, wow, you know, that's just, that came out so good. Um, and it just makes me feel good to know that there's that sort of unconsciousness, spontaneous thing that happens creatively where your ears and your brain and your hands all connect to make something beautiful. You know, I just lose all track of time. Uh, I have to keep a clock on the desk to remind me what time it is because I'll mix right through lunch, you know, if I'm left to my own devices. That's great. Oh, <laughs> speaking of time, I think we've used up enough of yours. Okay. And thank you so much for talking to us. Well, it's been a really great it's been conversation. It's been a pleasure. I love talking about this. It's Aside from my family and my children, my work is the most important thing to me that I have. You know, uh, material things are not, not that important, but doing something that you love and being able to earn a living, you know, and keep yourself going, doing it is, uh, you know, that's, that's important to me. Thank you. Good. I can't wait to hear this podcast. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Tone Vendors. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.